Welcome to Talks at GS, where leading thinkers share insights and ideas shaping the world. This session of Talks at GS was recorded before a live audience. My name is Heath Terry. I cover the internet sector for Goldman Sachs. Uh, really excited to have with us today Evan Spiegel, founder and CEO of Snap. Evan, thanks for taking the time to join us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great. Sure. So for people in the audience that, that know Snap best uh, as users of the product, what's the right way for them to, to think about the, the company and what you're trying to build? I think fundamentally Snapchat represents the way that the camera has really changed people's lives. And I think primarily the way people understand that today is the way that the camera has become used actually primarily as a communications tool. So today, uh, over three and a half billion snaps are created every single day. That's more than actually the, the total number of digital photos taken every day in, in the world. And the reason why that's happening is because people are using their camera to talk. Um, and, and that's really because visual communication, I think, is just a much richer, richer uh, communication medium uh, than text. So text is really great for conveying information or you know, maybe talking to an old friend or something like that. But when it comes to your really close friends and the people you care a lot about, you want to be able to convey emotion. And I think you know, videos, photos allow you to, to convey uh, emotion in, in a way that's just not possible with text. And so Snapchat's really unlocked this new visual communication uh, behavior. Um, that, that has, has become uh, quite popular over the years. So I think Snapchat really represents the evolution of the camera as a really important tool in people's lives. Uh, you know, going from one used to document the world around you to now being primarily used for communication and in the future uh, used for things like overlaying computing on the world through augmented reality. Yeah, so I think there's a lot we wanna, wanna dig into there, but maybe to start with some of the numbers, um, revenue growth at the company has accelerated the last two quarters in a row. You've grown users at a higher rate every quarter for the last four quarters in a row. How do you get comfortable that you can continue to accelerate growth at that kind of pace? Yeah, we see a huge amount of opportunity uh, ahead, really as a result of our, our really big investments over the past couple of years. Uh, you know, one of the most notable ones being all of our investments to improve our Android product, which has now uh, allowed us to grow in markets that, frankly, were very difficult to grow in uh, before because our quality, uh, the product quality, was was just inferior. Um, <clears throat> and, and things like our advertising platform, which now uh, allows all sorts of advertisers and not just big brands to advertise uh, on Snapchat. And so I think both of those things uh, you know, represent growth opportunities for us. Of course, you know, uh, Android and obviously all of our investments in content and AR, uh, you know, growing the supply side uh, of our business in terms of users and user engagement. But then, of course, uh, you know, uh, really a focus on growing advertiser demand as well. Um, so I think you know, both of those combined uh, mean, mean there's a lot of opportunity for our business. You know, both, both both in the short term, but also long term. Yeah. How do you think about disaggregating the supply side of that, users, and the demand side in terms of advertisers, where that, where that growth is coming from? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. So I think today, because our business is so new, so, so uh, young, uh, you know, 
uh, if we look at the, the revenue growth, I think that's really uh, going to be, at least in the, in the near term, next couple of years, more closely correlated actually with advertiser growth, uh, you know, advertiser spend growth and, and active advertisers. Um, and that's just be, we have, that's because we have so much uh, engagement, we have so much supply. Um, and so I think that's something that we're really focused on uh, as, as a business. Obviously this year we, we reorganized uh, our, our sales force. Um, so now uh, that's verticalized and we can go really deep with advertisers. Um, but we also have rolled out new tools like Instant Create on our self-serve platform to help you know, sort of the longer tail of advertisers by advertising uh, on Snap. And then, of course, you know, if we look at the long term of the business, five, ten years, of course, uh, you know, user growth and engagement is, is critical uh, to that sort of long term picture. But I think, you know, if you're looking at the next, uh, let's call it three years, it's really a function of, of building more demand. Um, and I think the business, you know, the way it's been structured, let's say, over the last seven or eight years, the, our entire company has been really focused on the supply side. And that's, that's obviously what's really difficult to build in our industry, especially to build organically. And so we've been really focused on growing users and growing engagement. And now, uh, you know, I think we're going to continue to do that, but also grow, uh, you know, learn how to grow uh, the demand side of the business, uh, not just through our sales efforts, but, you know, also marketing, communications, product, engineering, the whole business is thinking about how to build that side of, of the marketplace. Yeah, I mean, growing the supply side of it's obviously incredibly difficult. You not only have been able to aggregate together more 18 to 34-year-old users than any other platform online, you're also getting them for 30 minutes or more a, a day. What does that user base look like, and, and how are they using the platform? Yeah, we've, we've seen a lot of engagement uh, with the, our 13 to 34 uh, demographic, which for us is uh, strategically a, a critical demographic, not only uh, because, um, you know, that's a demographic that enjoys using uh, new products, um, but also because um, I think they represent uh, really the, the future. So, yeah. uh, so for us, um, we might say the children are <laughs> our future. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that that's obviously been a you know a, uh, a group that's that's been really fun to build for and it really it started because those those are our friends um, and so over time the platform uh, has has aged up considerably and I think that's a result of our really high retention so on our last earnings call uh, we shared that you know if you use a service for a year uh, your annualized retention rate for the next five years is north of 95 percent so you know as as people uh, come into Snapchat they learn how to communicate visually um, you know they they stick around and then they use other parts of our products so we've uh, built a stories product that's really a, like a broadcast media product, um, you know, we've we've also created a, a very large augmented reality platform because so many people use our camera every day. And we just recently this year actually created a gaming platform, so yeah. uh, we're having fun uh, experimenting with that. But you know, this core communications behavior with the people that you really care about, uh, you know, your real friends, uh, you know, drives the frequency of engagement. And then these other products like our content platform drive you know more time spent. Yeah. You've mentioned augmented reality a couple of times and, and have talked about it before. Where, where do you see the value, particularly to the, to the average Snap user or just the, even the broader population, coming from augmented reality to developing as a technology? So I think I think we're sort of on a journey uh, uh, of augmented reality evolving over time, and so I can sort of talk about where where we've been over the last couple of years, and then maybe where where we are today, and then sort of uh, maybe the near term sort of evolution. And I think at a really high level uh, in the first generation of our augmented reality lenses products, a lot of people used uh, augmented reality just to make funnier videos, right. <laughs> uh, basically as a way um, to to have you know more fun uh, you know with filters uh, on our camera and to you know make their snaps. Uh, more appealing to their friends. So I think that was sort of the first generation, the last couple uh, of years. 
And I think what we're starting to see increasingly, and, and I think we're at sort of the beginning of this next phase, is that uh, businesses um, and other developers are using augmented reality to, to help uh, solve business problems and to solve problems for customers. So quite literally, uh, one of our partners, Photomath, uh, has created a product where you can press and hold on a math problem and solve it. Um, but also, uh, I think we're seeing a lot of brands experiment with try-on type products. So today, a lot of brands um, spend a lot of time and money trying to get people just to try out the things they create. And AR provides a really low friction way for customers uh, to do that. So I think we're seeing a lot of experimentation around trial as well, whether that's you know fashion products or, or things like that. And so I think that's the beginning of sort of this next wave of augmented reality, uh, where people really understand that AR can, can help solve problems for businesses mm -hmm. and customers, and isn't just uh, a way to make your snap look funnier, something like that. Um, content's another area that you've that you've focused on. Um, you've got partnerships with a lot of the companies that are here today. Uh, how have you seen your users engaging in, in content, and what is the what does the future of that opportunity look like for you? It, it might be helpful even going back to when we first uh, created our Discover platform. Sure. Um, you know, because what we had seen uh, was that people were starting to to create uh, just for themselves, for their friends, uh, stories. And this was a, this was a new product because no one had really put uh, full screen content uh, in chronological order online. So everything actually, all these feed-based products were reverse chronological order, and it didn't really make sense. It's very hard to tell stories. And so we saw immediately uh, our community respond to this new way uh, of storytelling. And what we also saw at the time was that media was being distributed in new ways online that weren't necessarily uh, constructive. It was really hard to find high-quality uh, mobile-first content. And so uh, you know, even if you found something from a reputable publisher, it wasn't really built for your phone. It was you know, built uh, for a desktop experience. And so you know, I, I remember some of the first meetings coming to New York and trying to beg publishers to take a chance uh, on building stories for, for Snapchat. And you know, that time, I, we, we had a reputation, I think, as being a, a sexting app. And so <laughs> trying to convince uh, a, a reputable publisher to take a risk and, and build uh, these stories was challenging, but you know a number did, and we were shocked by the uptake uh, in our community. So there was just a real appetite for higher quality, you know, made for mobile content. And you know, I think what's been really interesting is as we've gone on this journey with our partners, we've been able to evolve that format, evolve the monetization behind it, and find new ways to tell uh, stories, including uh, more, more, more recently our shows product, which has mm -hmm. done really well. So I think NBC you know, created from the ground up a new brand called Stay Tuned. They reached like 28 million people. Um, which you know is, I, I think, quite a, quite a large number for sure. for a new show, as far as I understand. Um, and I think what's even more exciting is that uh, the people watching that show are a net new audience for them. And so I think what brands are finding is that you know they can take their existing assets. You know, ESPN's done an amazing job with SportsCenter, making SportsCenter relevant to a, a younger audience, or they can create totally new uh, media products because we ha we have a lot of uh, distribution and and. I think all the folks engaging with that content uh, represent new new customers for these media brands. So I think we're just grateful we've been able to really iterate and experiment with our partners, and you know to create uh, you know I think content that resonates. And of course, I, I guess we shared uh, recently. You know we've seen time spent grow 60% year on year in premium content. The audience has grown 35%. So even though this this platform uh, you know is five years old, it's still growing quite quickly because there's so much demand uh, for high quality mobile content. Great. Uh, you also mentioned the. Um uh, the early efforts that you have in gaming and, and the content that you're sort of focusing on on that side of the of the platform. What was it about gaming that made it interesting to you, and, and how's it going so far? 
Yeah, so you know, if you look at gaming, our fundamental thesis was that it's actually really hard to play a game with your friends on mobile. So you have to get all your friends together, you all have to download the same app, uh, then you have to like friend each other on the app, um, and then all play together at the same time. And so that's a, those are like a lot of steps to unlock what's what's a really fun experience, right? Playing with your friends, talking to them at the same time. Um, and, and so we, we thought that Snapchat could really add differentiated value there. Uh, it's a place where you, you know, talk to your close friends all the time, um, and if we could provide uh, a way to play games together and, and to talk, uh, that that would provide a lot of value. So uh, we started prototyping that experience many years ago. Uh, we, we released our own game called Bitmoji Party, which is a lot of fun. You can play as your own uh, Bitmoji. And actually what we found that's really interesting is when you play with more friends, you spend a lot more time playing. So I think the fundamental thesis there was correct. Um, and now, you know, obviously we're less than a year into, into sort of the, the development of our games platform, but we're learning a lot. We're working with really great partners. Um, and I think we're, we're going to continue to deliver value to our community. But it's, it's obviously a huge opportunity. I think it's really in line with, with our values and, and the sorts of products we love creating. So. As a CEO, you've had to manage through a lot of change over the last the last couple of years, and you know I, I think that's that's something that CEOs of most companies have to go through, especially early early stage. How how have you found? What have you learned from a leadership perspective, and how do you feel about the the team that you've got around you now? Well, I'd never been a CEO before, so I learned a lot uh, for sure, um, and I think. Um, some of the most important lessons uh, we've learned, frankly, have been around the team. And I think uh, really figuring out like the leadership style uh, that, that works for me. And I think yeah. what we found uh, to work really well for, for our business is to, to have a team uh, of operators that really work together as a team. So some businesses have a COO structure or something like that. But what we found is that you know, if everyone sitting around the table is really responsible for operating their part of the business and we can all work really well together, uh, that that's sort of how the, the magic happens. And I think that's especially the case because we're a company that's built on product innovation, and that requires all of our teams really working well together to create all these new uh, experiences. So in the case of you know, our content platform, like you mentioned, we've got to get our engineering teams working really well with our product teams, working really well with partnerships, working really well with monetization so uh, that we can create a successful and thriving uh, content ecosystem. And so I think um, a lot of it has really been in, in getting the team right and that, that dynamic uh, really working. And then, you know, of course, we learned a lot of lessons about being a, a public company, but I think, um, you know, I think we, we're, we're still finding the, the right balance of you know, taking a lot of risk and pushing the business forward, but you know, not having that be you know, too disruptive, frankly, because our, our team is paid in stock. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that's one of the challenges as, as a public company for us, that when you have really volatile compensation, when an engineer uh, is worried about their mortgage payment because the stock swings 80%, uh, that, that's, not, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's difficult to manage and not the right thing for our team. And so I think we're getting that balance right. We're doing a much better job now testing and iterating um, um, so that we don't, uh, you know, have uh, some of the swings we saw, of, you know, as a result of our redesign. But I think if you look at at the redesign and what that represents in terms of the premium content opportunity, that that was the right long-term bet. Um, but uh, I think we were we're sort of uh, iterating on the way we get there. Um, and so hopefully we can find a way to continue taking these these big bets, releasing products that you know really can can change our platform and and provide a lot of value to our community. But to do that in a way uh, that's sustainable as a public company. So. Yeah. One of the bigger issues around um, uh, online advertising in particular, but, but just the internet as a, as a whole that you've talked about in the past is, is this issue of privacy and the way that users' data is, is being used. Um, how does Snap differentiate itself when it comes to, uh, when it comes to that area? 
Well, I think we've really been uh, an innovator and, and a leader here, frankly, over the last seven or eight years, and really identified some of these issues long before anyone else sort of realized it, they, they were a problem. Um, and I think you know that actually meant we had to do a lot more work on the front end, explaining to advertisers why, you know, for example, we weren't willing to store everyone's data forever or read their messages, things like that. Um, but I think all that work we did up front is is really benefiting us today because obviously you know customers are showing they care about about their privacy. And, and I think because we view this as an opportunity and something that's strategically important for the company, we've been able to innovate uh, around things, you know, like I can give an example. We invented something called DDML, um, which is uh, basically a distributed device machine learning. So today, on most platforms, uh, when you interact with them, all of, the, all of your interactions are aggregated and sent up into the cloud, uh, where, you know, uh, basically we learn, you know, or a, a platform learns your preferences and then you know, can personalize your, your content experience, for example. And what we did is we actually built a way to send down a little model to your phone. As you interact uh, with content, for example, we can learn your preferences. And then in an anonymized way, that model can update on your device and then go back up to the cloud and update the bigger model. And that's a really interesting way to provide personalized content, but also not compromise uh, you know, the, the privacy of our community. And so I think just by viewing uh, privacy and privacy engineering as an opportunity, we've been able to invent a lot of ways to, to get a lot of the benefits of all this technology without necessarily compromising uh, you know, the privacy of our community. Yeah. To the extent that you know, regulation around this area is starting to appear inevitable, at least at, at some level. What's what's the right path for, or in the right role for regulators to take in, in, in this market? Um, I mean, maybe we should tease out a couple of um, sort of like the broader issues. Sure. So I think uh, on, on the privacy front, I think the most important thing is a, is a slow, like deliberate and thoughtful approach to privacy. And I think I can, I can give a counterexample, uh, which is, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with CCPA, which is the California uh, privacy regulation. It was sort of rushed, frankly. Uh, and, and I think one of the things we saw there is this unintended consequence that a lot of small publishers today basically will have to disclose you know, that they are selling data to Google or Facebook. And of course, Google and Facebook don't have to disclose that they're selling data to anyone. And so you end up with this very interesting circumstance where a lot of these smaller digital publishers who want to work with Google and Facebook, who want to monetize their audience with Google and Facebook, are going to have to disclose that they're selling data to Google and Facebook. And I think in, in doing so, uh, that has entrenched, frankly, uh, Google and, and Facebook a bit um, unnecessarily. And I, I contrast that with what we saw with GDPR, which we, we view as much more thoughtful privacy regulation that really mm -hmm. serves the consumer and still gives an opportunity to small businesses, um, uh, you know, I think, um, you know, to, to compete, frankly. So, uh, so I think when, when we look at privacy regulation, we look at the, the changes that are happening, I think the most important thing is that everyone sort of takes the time to get it right. And I think that's sort of one of the challenges with democracy. Democracy takes a while sometimes, sure. um, but it seems like we usually end up with the right answer. Uh, so I think just, just taking the time to go through that process uh, could, could be very valuable. And then I think, you know, sort of the existential question at a really high level uh, that I think regulators are grappling with is that we seem to, you know, have uh, found ourselves in a pretty interesting gray area, at least as it pertains to social media. And let me sort of describe what I mean by that. You know, historically over the last, let's call it 100 years, we've had very specific regulations around telecommunications and broadcast. So with telecommunications, you can call your friend, you can have a one-on-one -on -one conversation, or even call a couple of friends at the same time. You can say all sorts of wild and inappropriate things, and at the end of the day, your privacy is respected because you're having a private conversation. But if you want to broadcast to millions and millions of people on television, for example, there's a whole set of regulations about what you can and can't say. 
And I think this has actually worked quite well for, for a very long time. And there seems to be a gray area today uh, with this idea that anyone in the world can say whatever they want to millions and millions and millions of people. Mm -hmm. And this is sort of the gray area that you know, we're grappling with as a society and that regulators are grappling with. And I, and I think this is going to require uh, a much larger conversation, frankly, A, as a society, is this, is this something that we want, right? Mm -hmm. we, you know, 50, 100 years from now, we may look back and say, wow, that was, that was interesting. You know? yeah. <laughs> um, and, and Let's hope that's all we're saying. Yeah. Let's hope we're around to say that. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, but, but in contrast, I think you know, we, we may need to find other solutions yeah. to, to this new uh, sort of emergent form of communication. And I think in the case of Snapchat, this is something that we've thought a lot about. So for example, if you want to broadcast to millions of people on Snapchat, we actually choose who can do that. Right, mm -hmm. um, and so you know, if you're uh, a really big celebrity or something like Kylie Jenner, okay, and we t share our content uh, guidelines, and you're you're free to reach a really large community. But if you're just anybody and you want to say some wild and inappropriate things to millions and millions of people, that's actually not possible uh, on Snapchat. And I think that actually reflects our view that consumer tastes are going to evolve quite dramatically over time, and that some of the content that people are you know, consuming today on social media may actually be less interesting than more premium content uh, you know, going forward. And I think there's just been historically an underinvestment in premium mobile content. And so there aren't a lot of alternatives uh, today to some of the user-generated or influencer content on, so on, on social media. But as, as the ecosystem evolves, as more and more people start investing in premium mobile content, I think this may be less, less of an issue. But I think in the meantime, um, you know, this, will, this, this sort of seems to me like the existential question uh, facing our society and facing regulators. Yeah, I mean, one, of the, one of the big areas where that, where that plays a role is within, within news. What, you've got partnerships with the Wall Street Journal, The Economist, you know, countless legitimate, thoughtful news outlets. Um, how do you think about create the, the, the opportunity that you have um, to create something that maybe has more value, value in mobile news um, understanding than maybe the way we're getting it now? Well, I think at a really high level, we've always had a lot of respect for editors mm -hmm. because it seems like it's actually really hard to run uh, a media company. Um, and, and so I think one of the things we really benefited from in the beginning was the editorial perspective. You know, so editors would come onto our platform and actually package editions for people uh, on Snapchat to, to consume. And I think that's actually quite different today uh, you know, uh, on, on social media because on social media, it's your friends uh, choosing the articles that you see. Um, and, and I think for us, just that simple step of you know, bringing an editor into the conversation, allowing them to decide what content they want to show uh, our community has made a huge difference. And I think that's sort of what contributes to the really high, you know, the high quality, frankly, of, of uh, news on Snap. Um, we talked before about the, the strength that you have with 18 to, to 34 year olds. How do you think about growing the, the, the demographic? Is there, is there value for Snap in, in broadening that out? I think the most important thing is is really to retain all the people that use our, our platform uh, over time. So I shared a little bit some of, some of our retention uh, metrics, but but I think the most important thing is once you learn how to communicate visually, it becomes such an important part of your life um, that uh, it's hard to imagine you know communicating another way. Um, and so I think you know as we look at growing over time, we just want to continue to provide the best possible service. And we've seen you know uh, obviously starting with our friends in college and high school, you know we've we've all grown over time, grown with Snapchat. And, and I think um, you know, that, that will continue. Uh, I think one, th one area we could do better and an area we're investing a lot uh, is really on personalizing the content experience, depending on sort of who you are, 
uh, and where you're living, how old you are, things like that. So I think, I think there's going to be a bunch of investment there to, to make sure that your content experience, your AR experiences, even your gaming experiences are, are relevant based on your demographic. But I think that, that core experience of communicating visually is you know, universal. And, and I think when people learn how to do it, it's, uh, it's you know, I, I think, uh, really exciting. Evan, thanks for taking, taking the time to be with us. We really appreciate it. This podcast was recorded on September 18th, 2019. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part or disclosed by any recipient to any other person. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any recipient is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that recipient, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.